0: be reading from 2 Samuel, chapter 23, if y'all would like to read with me, I'll give you a moment to get there, 2 Samuel 23, verses 11 and 12, and after him was Shema, the son of Aege, the Herod. The Philistines had gathered together into a troop where there was a piece of ground full of lentil. So the people fled from the Philistines. But he stationed himself in the middle of the field, defended it, and killed the Philistines. So the Lord brought about a great victory. What well, is good to see each of you this morning. Especially if you're visiting with us, we are so proud that you're here and we want you to come back and, and be with us at every opportunity that you have and are able to do that. It It has never really been my habit to design a sermon based on a holiday. That doesn't mean I do not enjoy the holidays. I do. But to be honest with you, when I am preparing a sermon... I may not realize that it is a certain holiday until it's that day. And so uh, I don't normally do that. But I do want to say thank you to all the mothers in the audience today. I know at our house we are able to, for the first time in a very long time, have all four of our girls with us and uh, sitting around the table at the same time and sitting in the pew at the same time. And I know that their mother. Really enjoys that, and I'm grateful for that also. When we think of motherhood, uh, you know, I I guess we can't help but think of uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus who God had chosen to bring that child into the world, and uh, we appreciate her great motherhood and, and the fact that she did bring baby Jesus into this world. And I was talking with two beautiful little girls in the back earlier, and they wanted us to talk just a little bit about that. And so I said, well, I'll try my best to see if I can do that. And they must have studied that in class. And so uh, we appreciate them having an interest in uh, the baby Jesus and what He grew into and what He brings to us uh, because of His uh, sinless life He lived and the wonderful sacrifice on our behalf. And so we always appreciate our young people when when they show such a wonderful interest in things like that. As we study through the Bible and within the history of the Bible, we learn about a great many faithful men and women who have stood for God and have stood up under terrible situations, under great duress. And one of the things that I believe that sticks out or at least sticks out in my mind is that those wonderful men and women who were so faithful to God also demonstrated a great faithfulness to other people who were God's people. And I believe that perhaps there's no greater example of that than King David. When we begin to understand King David and that he was in fact a man after God's own heart, 1 Samuel 13, 14, his subjects realized that. Those who served in David's court in different capacities understood that he was, <clears throat> excuse me, a man after God's own heart and that he was faithful to God. He made some terrible mistakes in his life, but he overcame those and was able to overcome those. And so he had those who, who worked in his kingdom and served at his pleasure, understanding that he was a man of God and that he was faithful to God. When we get over to 2 Samuel 23, and we begin to study that section of Scripture, the Bible begins to describe to us in some detail about what it calls the mighty men who served under David. Now, these were a group of highly trained men. They were trained soldiers, they were valiant, they were courageous, they feared God, they They had a great respect for King David and they had every intention of always doing that which was right and they aided David in his victories that God provided for him. Now, within this group of many mighty men, there were three men that is found mentioned in chapter 23. We might say they were the mightiest Of the mighty, they are pointed out and brought to our attention among the many mighty men who fought for David. We read about Adino the Esnite; he killed eight hundred men with his spear at one time. We read about Eleazar, who killed so many Philistines in battle and he waged battle for so long that his hand became weary, his arm became weary, and he could not loosen the grip of his hand on the hilt of his sword. He had held it in his hand for so long and fought so bravery bravely that the Scripture says that he could not remove his hand. It cleaved to the hilt of his sword. Finally, we read about a man named Shema who took a stand against the enemies of God while everyone else left. And he stood firm and he stood up and he brought a great victory to David, to the Israelite people over the Philistines. Now, this morning, Shema is going to be our focus. I want us to discuss some things that this valiant man did. And I have entitled. The sermon this morning, Fighting in God's Pea Patch. Fighting in God's Pea Patch. Because that is what Shema did. He stood up and fought bravely. When the Philistines attacked the people, he didn't back down. He didn't look the other way. In fact, when we read the passage when they came and they attacked the people, all the people ran away. That is all except for Shema. He decided and he made a decision that he would take a stand in a field of lentils. Now we know those as peas. We might call them peas or split peas or or whatever the case is. But he took a stand out in that field and he said, I'm not going to go anywhere. I'm going to stand up and I am going to fight and I'm going to bring a victory to God. Now, there are a lot of things we can learn from this passage. There are a lot of lessons that can be taught from this passage. There are a myriad of sermons that can be preached from this one passage. But I want to focus on only one thing this morning. I want us to come away with a better understanding of what it means to take a stand for God, how we're going to go about taking a stand for God, and what taking a stand for God will bring to us and for us. We need to understand there's a time to fight, even when everyone else runs away. Just like Shema did in that field of lentils. The first thing that we need to understand when it comes to taking a stand for God and being faithful to God is that there will be times of conflict in the life of every Christian. That's our first point. There will be conflict. The Bible is clear. When it speaks to the conflict that Israel endured, and as we we begin to read this fuller passage, beginning in 2 Samuel 23, we learn exactly why the Philistines arrived at the doorstep of Israel. They came at a certain period of time, didn't they? They arrived while everyone was out in the field. And now you're only in the field for one reason. Either you're planting or you're harvesting. They were harvesting. They had gone out during the time of harvest and they were gathering food. Second Samuel 23 verse 11. Now that gives us some much needed information that we need in our fight against Satan. From that simple statement that these people were out in the field, they were harvesting what God had blessed them with, that is when they came under attack. Our enemy will attack and does attack and continues to attack while we're in the harvest. Now we're going to notice some things that Israel didn't do, some things that they should have done. Now as we speak, and as we live in this world at this time, We are commanded to be in the fields of God harvesting because the fields are white unto harvest, John 4, verse 35. We're supposed to be bringing in the sheaves, aren't we? We're supposed to be out there because it is harvest time. And it's time to work in the fields. But how does that necessarily translate to us? In other words, I think what we're saying is that while we are focusing our attention on the work of God, Satan will be attacking. So what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to take our attention away from the work that we're supposed to be fulfilling? And focus solely on the attacks that Satan sends our way? Well, absolutely not. We're never to take our focus off the work of God. But at the same time, we're never to stop being vigilant in protecting ourselves personally and individually from the attacks of Satan. Notice how Peter described our enemy. He said he was a lion, a roaring lion, a hungry lion, a lion who is on the hunt. He's looking for someone to devour, someone to destroy, 1 Peter 5.8. And he wants to destroy us. He is constantly being vigilant in His effort, so we have to be constantly vigilant in our effort. That doesn't mean for one second we take our focus off the work of God. I think the Christian is the epitome of multitasking, right? We have to focus on the work. We must always be prepared. Notice what happened to Israel. They were out in the fields... They were enjoying the great blessings that God brought upon them, but they were preoccupied. Now God never wants us to be preoccupied. To be preoccupied means you're focusing on one thing to the detriment of everything else. Oh, we need to focus on bringing in the sheaves. We need to focus on the harvest, but not to the detriment of protecting ourselves against Satan. We have to be vigilant. We have to be on our guards. We have to be able to do all of that at one time. Israel wasn't doing that. They were preoccupied on the blessings that God had given them in bringing in their harvest, and they were not prepared for war. At what point in the Christian's life is it ever okay not to be prepared for war? Never. Never. We're always to give an answer if we're asked of the hope that is in us or have the ability to give an answer for the hope that is in us when someone asks us why we believe what we believe. Satan will focus on us when things are going well. He hopes that we become preoccupied with the wonderful blessings that God has given us. He hopes that we're going to be so happy that our children are able to come home on a holiday He wants us to be so happy when we have the birth of a new child. He wants us to be happy when we get to see friends we haven't seen in some time. He wants us to to be happy when we receive something nice in this world, when we're able to provide for ourselves. And Satan wants us to be happy, but only because he wants us to be distracted. He wants us to pay no attention to what he's doing. He wants us to be all caught up in the great blessings that God has given to us so we become preoccupied and so He can sneak right in and attack an unprepared people. That's what He did to Israel. We never have an excuse, never, for being unprepared. James said, resist the devil and he'll flee from you, James 4, 17. And that's what God expects. He never expects us to be unprepared. He never wants us to be preoccupied. He, In fact, He wants us to be like Nehemiah. Do you remember when Nehemiah went back and he was building the walls of the city and, and he put different families in different sections and they built the wall while one hand was on their sword? He had people building and people watching. They didn't give up on building the wall. They understood that was a requirement. That was the work in which they were engaged. But at the very same time, they were to be watchful for the enemies of God. Nehemiah four sixteen through 18. The Philistines entered the scene during the time of harvest, catching an unprepared people. But we learn some other things from the narrative. We not only learn when they arrive, we also learn what their ambition was. They wanted to do two things. They wanted to come and attack Israel and inflict casualties on the people. The fewer the number, the easier the victory. They also wanted to destroy their food sources. That's why they come and harvest. That was the habit of invading armies during that time uh, and period in the world. They would come when the when the men were engaged in harvesting they weren't they weren't protecting the homes their minds were on something else and if they could come in and catch all the men all together at one time destroy those men destroy the food source and when you have a starving people what happens you're looking for something to eat you remember in the desert in the wilderness rather when the people were <clears throat> trying to go to the promised land and they said oh We're having to eat this old manna. We're starving to death. We want some meat. And they began to think about all the things that they had back in Egypt. They were not focused on God's work. They were focused on their belly. And that's not what God wants. He wanted to destroy the people. And they wanted to destroy the crops on which the people depended. When we have fewer soldiers in the work of God, fewer sheaves will be brought in. Fewer of the harvests will be brought forth. There's going to be a lack of what we need. They would march through these fields. They would trample the crops, killing the men as they went. And the same is true of our enemy today. I want us to notice something. When Satan attacks us while we're engaged in the harvest, he is wanting to give us a mortal wound to stop us from working, And he wants to destroy the crops that we're supposed to be raising. Now, we're not raising peas. We're not raising lentils or anything like that. But we are raising fruit. We're raising crops, right? I think there's something we need to understand. Satan doesn't care that we have a congregation here. He doesn't mind. Satan doesn't mind that we preach from the Bible here. Satan doesn't mind that we sing songs of praise to God within the walls of this building. Satan doesn't mind if we're praying to God. Let me tell you what Satan minds. Satan wants us to leave it within these walls, and the very second we go outside, he's on the attack. He doesn't care what we do in here. We're small in number, aren't we? He has the whole city nearly. He's not going to worry about 80 people necessarily. But when we go outside these walls and we begin to knock on a door and we begin to try to have a Bible study and we begin to live our lives in front of people like God wants us to live and we begin to grab their attention and they get interested and they want to know what we're doing and why we're different, then He doesn't like that. Now He wants to come and attack our harvest. He wants to destroy us. When we decide to get serious about the work of God, look out. Here comes Satan. He's not going to stand for that. Not without trying to do something to stop it. When he learns we're reaching out, he's going to try to stop us from reaching out. When he finds out we want to bring others into the kingdom of God, he's coming to the pea patch. He's coming to interfere with our harvest. And if He can destroy our crops, then we're going to be weak, we're not going to be able to have what we need, and we're not going to be able to properly defend ourselves. And that's what Satan wants. What are our crops? Well, we can begin with the fruit of the Spirit, can't we? We talk about that or we read about that in Galatians 5.22. Joy, peace, all those things. We're, We're supposed to be raising fruit. What about repentance, Matthew 3, 8? We're supposed to bring forth fruits, meat for repentance. Satan doesn't want that. He does not want us repenting of sin in our lives. He wants to kill that crop because if we won't repent, we can't get to heaven. What about the seed of the Word, Matthew chapter uh, 13, 1 through 9? Sowing the seed. Before we can have a harvest, we have to sow the seed, right? Before we can eat the bread... and. I'm, uh, I'm always reminded of uh, the story of the little red hen, right? Everybody wanted to eat the bread at the end, but nobody wanted to plant. Nobody wanted to hoe the garden. Nobody wanted to water. No one wanted to do this. They didn't want to grind the corn. They wanted to eat the bread. It's not going to work that way, is it? We have to sow the seed first. And if Satan can snatch the seed, the seed of the Word, out of our hands, out of our grasp, what are we going to feed on? What are we going to eat? We'll become so weak that we can't even put up a fight. And we don't want that. Just like during the time of the battle between Israel and the Philistines, we will engage in conflict with Satan. It's just going to happen. That's what he wants and that's what's going to happen. But like Shema, we have to muster the courage to fight. That's our second point this morning. It's clear when we read about Shema that he had resolve. He was determined. It says that he stood within his heart. He said, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to stand right here. I heard a friend of mine one time who was a former Navy SEAL and he was talking to us a little bit about his training out in San Diego and he said that they would take them out into the ocean and it was so cold and they would sit them in a line out in that, uh, on the beach just right out into the ocean, and the water would come up just a little bit above their waist. And he said they'd be shivering, they'd be holding on to each other, trying to get a little heat. And I said, how in the world did you stand that? And he said, I resolved that I would sit in that ocean and die before I got up to go get warm. Boy, that's resolve, isn't it? That's resolve. You're going to sit in that ocean and let them drag your dead body out of there before you get up and go climb under a blanket and warm up a little bit? Hey, that's the kind of people I want on our SEAL teams, right? I want people with resolve. Now, what's more important? A military commando team or warriors for God. We have to have resolve like Shema had. He said, I'm going to stand right here in this pea patch and I will stay here. I'm not going to run around like everyone else and, and and flee. I'll stand right here and die if that's what's necessary. But isn't that what our Lord did? Isn't that what Christ did? Didn't He pray in the garden, Lord, if it's possible, please remove this cup from me. But if it's not, not my will but Thine be done. He didn't want to stay there. He didn't choose that. Shema didn't choose to fight the Philistines, but it was cast upon him. And he said, I have the resolve to stay here and die if necessary. And that's exactly what our Lord did for us. He said, I'll stay right here and I'll die on that cross if that's what it takes. And brethren, that's what it took. And he did that. When we read about Shema, we read about bravery, courage, and resolve. But we need to be careful when we read these descriptive terms. We might read about Shema, and I don't know if he's mentioned in in very many other places in the Bible, but we hear about him in two verses in 2 Samuel 23. And we read about him, and we might begin to think this was some kind of extraordinary man. Well, he was extraordinary, but he was just a man. We might begin to read about Shema and say, well, Shema, he never did mess up, did he? He never made any mistakes. But is it possible that he had not always been as faithful as he was at this time? Is it possible that he had made mistakes in his past and he wasn't always as faithful as he was at this time? Of course that's possible. It's very possible that he wasn't always what God needed him to be, but here's the thing, and this is where we need to gain encouragement and we need to make some kind of application to our lives today. He became exactly what God needed him to be and he stood in that field and he fought. And he was what God needed him to be moving forward. On that day, he took a stand, even if it meant giving his life for, for what he believed and for being faithful to God. And we have to maintain that same resolve today in the, in the congregations of the Lord's church. We have to do exactly what Paul commanded, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. He said, Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. That means we're always to be working. He expects it, He commands it, and He'll accept nothing less. The faithful will never leave the battle and allow Satan to come through, destroy everything we love and hold dear and trample our crops beneath His feet. We're not going to do it. We will never allow that. The faithful won't do that. So we must decide. Are we going to take a stand? Are we going to stand up for truth when congregations of the Lord's people are not? Are we going to allow Satan to hinder the work of the church? Are we going to allow him to interfere in our personal lives and destroy us individually? How do you destroy a group? You take them out individually, one at a time. That's what you do. I'm reminded of Movie Sergeant York, Gary Cooper, so many years ago, when he was in battle and he was defending uh, against those German machine gun nests and the people and and of course, uh, within the movie, they took some liberty, but it was based on the fact that when Sergeant York would go hunting and if he if he were hunting geese, he would shoot the goose behind, right. He wouldn't shoot the one in the front, and everybody else understand that, hey, we've got to get out of here. And it depicted that in the movie, didn't it? He started shooting the German soldiers from the rear forward. And they didn't understand that they were being attacked until it was too late. That's what Satan does. He'll get one of us. The rest of us just aren't paying attention. Then he'll get another one. The rest of us just aren't paying attention until eventually you look around and you've got five people in the group, and we're wondering where everybody went. Well, Satan got a hold of them, right? The faithful are not going to leave the battle. We have to understand, just like Shammah understood, some things are worth fighting for, some things are worth dying for. And within the courage of Shammah, we find resolve. But we also understand that that led to his reward. The Scripture tells us how he slew the enemies of God and gained such a great victory. For God, Because he stood firm. What are some of the things for which we fight? What are some of the things worth our engaging in conflict? What about the church? Is the church worth our fight? You better believe it's worth our fight. We should fight to the very end to protect the institution that Christ died for, Acts 20, 28. The Word of God, is it worth our fight? to protect the word of God and to defend it. What about prayer? Is is having the ability to pray and the the liberty to pray when we want to is that worth our fight? Amen. That's absolutely worth our fight. I'll fight for that every day. What about worshiping God the way I want to worship God? Is that worth the fight? Absolutely it's worth the fight. What about a faithful life? Is that worth the fight? What about our families? Are our families worth the fight? Do I want to influence my family to get to heaven or or am I going to just live however I want to and then let my children figure it out on their own? I don't think any of us here are going to do that. They're definitely worth our fight. What about our young people? Are they worth the fight? Yeah. What about our very souls? Are our very souls worth the fight? Well, it better be. All those things are literally... Worth dying for. And I think we would all do that. When we do, when we see the importance, I believe that we'll receive the reward of salvation just like Shema did. When we wage in God's battle, when we wage war, when we get out in the fields and and we fight like Shema fought, and we understand that conflict is a part of our spiritual walk in this world, we understand that we have to have courage if we're going to carry that out. But if we put those things together and we look at that and we become what God wants us to be, we can understand very quickly that if we fight the good fight of faith, 2 Timothy 4, verse 6 through 8, that we will have conquest. That's our third and final point this morning. The last part of verse 12 speaks to the victory that Shema had over the Philistines. But it was God who defeated the enemy of Israel, wasn't it? It was God who provided that victory. Shema was holding the sword, but God was doing the fighting. But that wasn't just peculiar to Shema, was it? That wasn't just peculiar to that period of time, to to that section of Israelites during that period of time. It was the same thing when David walked into the valley and defeated Goliath. It was God who defeated Goliath. And isn't that what David told Goliath? God will deliver you into my hands. What about Azariah, Hananiah, and Mishael as they stood getting ready to be cast into that fiery furnace and and they were thrown in and and they said, Our God is able to to save us. Oh, King, our God is able to save us if He chooses. But whether we live or whether we die, we're not going to bow down before this image. And so they were cast into that flame of fire. Were, Were they the ones that saved themselves from the fire or was God doing the fighting? God was doing the fighting. What about Daniel when the king said, You can't pray three times a day as is your habit, Daniel, or you'll be thrown into the lion's den. Did, did Daniel protect himself from those lions that night? No, God was doing the fighting, just like God was doing the fighting when Shemal held that sword in his hand and defeated his enemies. God's people are able to take a stand and to have victory only because God empowers them. His people. Paul said this Philippians four thirteen. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Christianity isn't about me, it's about God, isn't it? It's about Christ. It's about allowing him to work through my life, to present himself to the world through me and through everyone else as Christians. Isn't that comforting? to know that we can be victorious against Satan if we just simply want to be? Isn't that comforting to know that we can defeat him? Israel's enemies were defeated because God had one man that stood in that field and fought like it was worth fighting for. And he defended God's people. If we don't stand and defend... Satan will take over every single time. I was speaking with someone yesterday, and we were talking about parents of today and and children of today and the younger generation, and and we were talking about different ways people rear their children, and that's up to the parent. I've got four children, and that's, that's what I'm concerned with as far as child rearing goes. I'm not in the telling someone else how to rear their children business but I am in the business of talking about how God says to do it. And we're supposed to bring our children up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, Ephesians 6, verse 4. But I made the comment, I said, my girls did really well in school and continue to do well in school because that's what I expect. It's what their mother expects. If you expect nothing, you'll get it every single time. Without fail. If we expect nothing out of our children, we'll get it every single time. If we expect great things out of our children, we have a lot better chance of receiving that than if we don't. That doesn't mean that our children are never going to fail, but what it means is it instills in them that someone expects something from them. And the first interaction that we have with a a father is the father we have in this world, and if he expects something from us, if our parents expect something, We have a lot better shot at fulfilling that than if they don't expect anything. My father expected that I acted like I had some good sense in this world. That's what he expected. And when that didn't happen, which it did happen on occasion, he brought that to my attention and reminded me that he expected that. And so I changed what I was doing. When we expect our children to behave as Christians, we have a better chance of that happening. What are we going to do if we don't defend? What are we going to do if, if Satan takes the Bible out of our hands? What are we going to feed on? What are we going to consume? How are we going to get stronger and better? Are we going to continue to, to just drink milk? Well, what that leads into eventually is someone coming up with their own plan. Has that ever happened in this world? Paul told the elders in Ephesus, Acts twenty twenty eight. he said, "...take heed therefore unto yourselves, and to all the flock, over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers." to feed the church of God which He has purchased with His own blood. Notice what Peter demanded, 1 Peter 5, 2. He said, feed the flock. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. If Satan takes away the desire for us to work in the kingdom, who's going to carry the gospel to the world? If He steals that from us, if He tramples that under under our under, or under His feet, who's going to do that? What if He takes the will that we have to pray to God? Who's going to go to God on our behalf and, and treat Him for the blessings of this life and to help us to carry out His will if we do not have a desire to stand before God and pray? If we don't stand in the conflict against sin, who's going to do that? No one's going to do that. God wants us to have courage. And we better display it. That's what He expects. And the enemy continues to attack. He's not going to stop. God's people are always going to be under attack. The Philistines never stopped trying to get the upper hand on Israel. They never did stop. Like then, so many people today flee the field. They see the trouble coming and they stop. They're going to go somewhere else. They don't want the conflict We need to fight with courage and resolve, just like Shema did. He was a mighty man for a reason. We see that in congregations. We see congregations of the Lord's people not standing up. We see congregations of the Lord's people uh, uh, holding to things that are not what God wants. Too many abandon the harvest and they choose to flee. That's not what we want. We don't want to abandon the harvest. We work too hard for it. It's white unto harvest. Let's bring it in. Where do we stand today? Are we going to sit idly by while the enemies of God take over? I don't think so. I don't think we're going to do that because it's worth fighting for. It's worth dying for. We're not going to allow the kingdom of God to be ransacked by someone who wants us to be hurt in every single way possible. We're not going to allow that. We're going to be like Shema. I think everyone is going to take a stand. If you haven't taken a stand yet, today is the day. Today is the day to take the stand, give your life to Christ through obedience to the gospel plan of salvation, having belief in Christ that He is who He said He was, John 8, 24, repenting of past sins, being converted, Acts 3, 19, confessing that Jesus is the very Son of God, Acts 8, verse 37, being immersed in water so that our sins can be washed away, Acts 22, 19, so that we can be saved, Mark 16, 16 and living a faithful life all the way to the end, enduring the conflict, showing courage and having conquest over the enemies of God until the day that we die, Matthew 10, 22. If you've done that yet, you've become unfaithful. Get back in the fight. We need you. God needs you. The church needs you. If You need to repent of a sin that's kept you from being with God, whether publicly or privately, do that. And if it's in a public way and you need to make that Known, make that known today. We'll pray with you and for you. Think about that as we stand and as we sing.